Hello, and welcome back to the Everyday Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Green. This is a podcast where we remind ourselves that God deserves every praise from every creature every day. Dan Cates joins us again for another episode this season. Make sure you go back and check out our uh, part one and part two episodes on the deity of Christ at the beginning of the season. Certainly a very important subject there as we've been talking about doctrine this season on the Everyday Christian Podcast. Today, Dan is going to join us with a very special episode about his top five favorite uh, Christian evidences. So uh, we like to get into apologetics from time to time on this podcast. I think it's something that's very important for us as Christians to be able to uh, defend the faith. We think about 1 Peter 3.15, where we're we're told to uh, sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be always ready to give an answer or a defense for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. If you look at that word defense or or answer, it is apologia, and uh, that has to do with uh, being able to defend the faith. Dan, I'm, I'm certainly thankful that you're able to join us on the podcast this week, and I'm looking forward to, to hearing your uh, top five favorite Christian evidences. Well, it's good to be with you. I appreciate the invitation, and this is a, uh, a favorite subject of mine, so grateful for that. Yes, sir. Uh, Dan was uh, our Christian evidences teacher uh, at the Memphis School of Preaching and thoroughly enjoyed that class, and uh, he had us do some reports, if I recall, on uh, Christian evidences. and really enjoyed uh, doing the research to be able to do those uh, reports uh, that he had us do. So uh, Dan knows quite a bit about this particular subject. And so uh, without further ado, uh, before before we get into his ranking, I do want to mention that I had a, an episode several seasons ago. You can go back and look at it if you'd like to on my top five favorite Christian evidences. So uh, you can go back and check that. And um there may be some overlap here. I, I don't know. We might have some of the same ones. Maybe not, but I'm looking forward to hearing Dan's uh, list of his top five. Uh, but before we do get into that, I do want to ask you this, Brother Cates. Um, can you kind of explain how Christian evidences are important for this season's topic? We're talking about doctrine mainly this season, and this might be a kind of um, you know alongside or, or preparatory for a discussion of doctrine, I guess. Uh, how would we categorize this discussion, and and why is it important for us uh, when we when we talk about uh, our doctrinal beliefs? Right. Well, um, I, I think that all of a sudden my emails start to come through. I apologize for that. No problem. Uh, <laughs> I think that doctrine is actually a way that we could describe uh, Christian evidences to a degree. Uh, I think that supporting doctrine uh, is another way because I think both of those are elements of Christian evidences, but I'm going to suggest a third. But first, let me explain why I believe Christian evidences can fit into those two categories. Uh, With regard to doctrine itself, uh, obviously you cannot prove doctrine uh, that's metaphysical, you know, something that Uh, has to do with how a man is saved. You can't prove that from a scientific standpoint. Uh, However, if the contexts and the circumstances and the events of Scripture are substantiated by science and are substantiated by history, then that means that we can trust the one who was writing Scripture. 
And as much as we can trust him on writing scripture, then we can trust him on those things which have not been substantiated because they're not able to be. They're they're simply metaphysical. Uh, We can trust him on those matters as well. So when I've established that uh, the events of the first century that can be verified historically did take place, the proper rulers in the right places at the proper times, uh, in the proper positions and so forth, then, then I can understand that Jesus can fit into that context. And the Bible, in as much as everything it says regarding that context, is accurate than the things that it says about Jesus, we can expect to be accurate. And that includes not only his physical existence, but that includes his uh, spiritual, uh, his spiritual work as well, for lack of a better term. So I think we can tie it in uh, to doctrine because the doctrine becomes reasonable due to the, the proof surrounding it. Uh, the idea that it supports doctrine, uh, I think that sort of falls along the same line. Uh, This is a supportive doctrine because if there is evidence that there is a God, and I think that evidence that there is a God can even be from the negative standpoint of there is not not another uh, alternative. If there's not another alternative, then you have to seriously consider that there's a God. And if there's a God, then you have to consider, uh, is he a God that stands off from his creation? Or is he a God who has interacted with his creation? If he is a God that has interacted with his creation, then let's think about the different ways that cultures have said their gods have interacted with him. And we have a book which claims to be his book. Anyway, uh, that gets into a philosophical Uh, argument as well. Uh, But again, I I think that we can see that supporting. But I would add that there is uh, a third category. And um, well, let me add one more thing before we do that. Uh, As far as the Bible and and it being doctrine, as far as Christian evidences are concerned, I I would suggest that there are a lot of passages uh, that God uses to speak of his being the creator, to speak of the events which we study as far as Christian evidences are concerned. Uh, We can think about Acts 14, verses 15 and 17. Uh, uh, Paul said, uh, you should turn from these vanities into the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. So that makes it doctrine. Uh, Exodus 20, 11, for six days, the Lord made heaven and earth to sea. Hebrews 11, 3, through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. So there is a doctrinal element there. Uh, but the third area, and I think this goes back to what you said with regard to the meaning of the word. Christian evidences shows why. Why we believe this. Why we stand behind his word. Why it is reasonable. God told Isaiah, come now let us reason together. All right, this tells us why we can reason. The, the uh, religious world, or not the religious, the secular world out there says belief in God is unreasonable. Christianity is unreasonable. Having a Bible given by God is unreasonable. When 
seeing what we have in, in the realm of evidence is uh, we certainly have apologetics. We have a reason why based on what we see. Anyway, belabored that point a little bit too long, but. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. We, we certainly want to make sure and have a good, clear understanding of that. Um, one of the things sometimes I have uh, been approached with is, uh, you know, somebody says, well, I don't really need Christian evidences. I've got faith. How would you right. respond to that? Well, that's, that's great. Uh, that is very great. The problem is the atheist doesn't. Uh, the person who says that there is no God, he doesn't have faith. Uh, I firmly agree that faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Uh, for the Christian, you know, he, he at some point has been exposed to the Bible, has read the Bible, has studied the Bible, has built faith, and then has acted upon that faith. The atheist out there who also has faith, but his faith comes from hearing his atheistic professors, hearing his parents that were a religious, hearing society that says that there is no God and so forth. He also operates on faith. So Christian evidences help us to show that his faith may not be founded where it ought to be. And so really Christian evidences is as much for dealing with the person who's outside as they are for encouraging the person who's in, for lack of a better term. So congratulations, you know, if, if you don't need Christian evidences, that's excellent. But there's an atheistic professor out there who's teaching children uh, that they don't need to respect their Bibles. It's good to have Christian evidences to answer. Right, that's the uh, next thing I was going to say is, you know, our younger generations are going to be bombarded with these sort of things, especially when they go off to college. And so they need these evidences as well. Uh, certainly, hopefully they have faith, but you don't want to uh, have any cracks in the foundation of their faith uh, that, you know, the the secular humanistic atheist professors, you know, try to uh, infiltrate, you know, their faith. So, all right. Well, without further ado, uh, Brother Dan, what what are your top five favorite Christian evidences? All right. I have a top five. Uh, I do have two honorable mentions. Okay. I'm going to quickly mention them. Uh, my first honorable mention is definitions. Uh, what I mean by that is we hear the term science all the time. In fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we have heard, especially because of some of the things taking place across the globe, and even as far as uh, uh, some of the moral issues of our day are concerned, that we need to follow the science and so forth. And yet we see the science being used by both sides of any given argument, which means that the science isn't speaking. All right, science uh, has vastly been misdefined. What science is, science is that which can be taken into a laboratory, can be exposed to the scientific method, can be uh, tested. Uh, it's, it's something which is reproducible. It's something which is witnessable. It's something which is falsifiable and so forth. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we hear science being used for opinion today and for whatever either political or social argument we're trying to make, we, we find science that will validate what we're saying. All right, science doesn't speak uh, due to the, the logical law of the excluded middle, science can't be for two opposites. 
All right, science is only going to have one thing to say. So if it's saying two different things, at least one side is misusing it. Uh, if we hear people talk about evolution, we will hear people call it a theory, the theory of evolution. Uh, I was actually in a classroom about 1996, 1997 yeah, at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. And one of the professors there said, uh, evolution is as much a law as the theory of gravity. All right, well, we know gravity is not a theory. Gravity is a law. Uh, but that's an example of an evolutionary professor who is trying to sway the minds of young people. Uh, in order to be a law, something has to have been uh, demonstrated time and time and time again to be scientific. And evolution fails that test because nobody has seen any organism evolve. We've seen organisms adapt, uh, but we've never seen any evolve. Uh, theory, theory also has to be something which is tested over and over and over. It has to be something that uh, is within human experience, which means that things like the Big Bang aren't even uh, theories. Uh, they're built on hypothesis, and even a hypothesis has to be something experienced. So the definitions we hear today are completely misused. Um, sort of leaning into that is the second of the honorable mentions, and that is fruit flies. Uh, fruit flies have been studied since, uh, I think, about 1905, 1906. I could be wrong about the date. Uh, fruit flies have a lifespan. I think it's 14 days, and they have, uh, I forget how many days, but it's, it's a matter of days before they're able to reproduce for the next generation. So in, a, in the case of, let's say, 115, 120 years, uh, there have been billions of fruit flies who have uh, been bred, mutated, had every external uh, thing forced upon them possible. And yet these billions of fruit flies have never evolved in anything other than fruit flies. Uh, evolution hasn't taken place, even with a mind and many well-educated minds trying to direct the evolution. It has not taken place. So those are my two honorable mentions. But number uh, number five, building toward number one. Can I stop you right there oh. real quick? Sir. Now, you talk about, you know, they're trying to direct evolution on these fruit flies. Now, we're talking about microevolution, which is, you know, adaptation. You know, they're trying to put those well, uh, things into the fruit flies, but they're still fruit flies. Yeah, they're still fruit flies, which means, and I don't really like the term microevolution. Right. Um, microevolution still implies that you have a progress upward. And if you give the evolutionist the least step upward, but you give him enough of those, he has macroevolution. Yeah. Uh, a, a, an adaptation is, is not an evolution. It is something that fits one for, better for an environment than another. So uh, adaptation is the difference between a chihuahua and a uh, Great Dane. Right. Now, the, the Chihuahua and the Great Dane are equally dogs. One of them's not higher on the evolutionary ladder than another. Um, which, by the way, if evolution were a law, every single circumstance uh, would have to show evolution. And that's merely simply not the case. We've demonstrated right. that uh, scientifically that things are equal. Dogs are equal. 
Um, anyway, so that's adaptation. So, yeah, uh, I would suggest that they're actually trying to force macro evolution upon mm. the fruit flies, but they're wow. still the, in the Drosophila melanogaster uh, category. Right. So they're not able to accomplish it. They're, that's right. they're still in the same kind of flies. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Let's, let's get to that main list. Okay. All right. Uh, number five and, and really number four for that matter are not going to sound what, like what we typically use for Christian evidences. Uh, we hear Christian evidences, we automatically think science, uh, but Christian evidences would involve any apology. And so number five is Bible archaeology and the fact that we have had many things which the spade has uncovered, which have supported the things which are taught in Scripture as far as events, people, places, and so forth. Uh, Brother Curry, uh, Richard Curry, who taught at the School of Preaching when I was a student, used to say every time the spade is turned, the Bible is confirmed. I don't know that I necessarily would go that far because you know, you're going to have an, a uh, scientist, an archaeologist rather, digging in Dothan, let's say, and he finds a uh, coin from A.D. 93. All right, that doesn't confirm the Bible. But never has any find disproven the Bible. As in spite of the fact you've had countless archaeologists, many of them, uh, biblical minimalists who would love to disprove the Bible. Uh, just a couple of things that we might mention there. Uh, the Tel Dan Stila, people said that David was not a historical person. Last day of digging season in 1993 at Tel Dan, they found the name David. And the same is proven true with reference to other names. Uh, people said that the Hittites didn't exist. Now we have volumes about the Hittites. Uh, the Merneptah Stila, uh, which was um, uh, found in 1896. It showed that Israel was already in the land of Canaan uh, in the 1200s BC. So anyway, there's some great things there. And that's just a few. Uh, number four, fulfilled prophecy. Uh, I love the intertestament period and, and love to study the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel talks about four kingdoms. Uh, we know that there were four kingdoms in, in the Mesopotamian region. There weren't five. There could have been five, uh, but Carthage was defeated by Rome somehow. And I think it's because of the providence of God, because prophecy would not allow a fifth, a fifth kingdom. Uh, that's an interesting study. Uh, we have people named 250 years before they were born, uh, like uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah uh, I mean, uh, Cyrus in Isaiah 44, 28, 45, 1. Uh, very important. Uh, we see a great uh, detail in Daniel chapter 11 uh, to the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, especially to Antiochus IV Epiphanes and those who stood against him. Uh, so that's number four. Number three is the design argument. Uh, where you have design, you have to have a designer. That's something that we see uh, quite often in our physical world. In fact, that's why architects and things of that nature will look to the animal kingdom to try to decide what structures work best. Uh, maybe we'll look to the vegetable kingdom and so forth. Now, but Hebrews 3, 4 says, for every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. 
well, there is a designer, there is a builder, there's a reason why there's evidence of design. And sometimes that uh, is called the teleological argument. So if you've heard teleological, that's just the design argument. Uh, my number two is thermodynamics. Thermodynamics, uh, these are laws. These laws say that uh, things move from order to disorder. Well, evolution would require disorder to order. That, that's, that breaks the law. And that's one of many laws that evolution and uh, atheism would, would require to be broken, including the law of biogenesis, that life only comes from non-life, uh, from life, not from non-life. Um, that was proven by Louis Pasteur back in the 1700s. And yet the evolutionist still has to have life begin uh, of itself. Uh, not through a, a creator. Uh, my number one is Mount St. Helens. Uh, I absolutely love uh, studying Mount St. Helens. I knew it. Uh, Mount St. Helens was a very small volcano. And yet this small volcano uh, over the course of basically two years served to produce a small, small scale Grand Canyon. Uh, there was a, a 5.0 earthquake that started the process beneath a 320-foot bulge on Mount St. Helens in, in 1980. This was May 18th. It had been growing since uh, the middle of March of 1980. Uh, different estimates have perhaps as many as 27,000 Hiroshima's every second, power being uh, released during that event. Uh, it was heard 690 miles away. Uh, ash, 400 million tons, according to National Geographic, and volcanic gas erupted from the crater for nine hours, uh, shooting up to 12 miles high. Uh, some have even suggested 20 miles high. Uh, this destroyed uh, 12 million board feet of logs, 650 miles of roads, and so forth. This was a small volcano. Uh, anyway, it, it uh, ultimately laid down a, uh, a layer of mud and ash and so forth uh, due to the, the lahar, the, the mud flow of um, melted glacier and whatnot. And uh, this, uh, this lahar... Uh, had time to harden, uh, basically became rock. Two years later, a subsequent eruption carved a 200-foot canyon in that. So you had relatively freshly laid rock, a uh, 200-foot canyon is carved through it by minor, even more minor eruption and subsequent uh, uh, flow of, of a lahar that could happen very quickly. Sediment could harden very quickly. It could be eroded very quickly. Uh, a great small scale demonstration of what happened in the Grand Canyon. Uh, also uh, at the bottom of, of, uh, of Spirit Lake, you have a fossilized forest that's being formed, uh, much like the fossilized forest that's found in Yellowstone. Uh, didn't take millions of years. It, it's taken uh, thus far 42. So anyway, those are my top five and a couple of uh, honorable mentions.
All right. Let's go back through and just list those again. And uh, I've got a couple of maybe questions and comments on on some of them. Uh, you said honorable mention definition of words and fruit flies. And then uh, number five, Bible archaeology. Number four, fulfilled prophecy. Number three, the design argument, or also known as the teleological argument. Number two, thermodynamics. And uh, also we could call that entropy. Is that right? Entropy is right. the second law of thermodynamics. Right. And that has to do with things becoming more and more disorganized over time. Right. Uh, in, rather in, a closed, than, in a closed system, things move from heat to cool. Right. So you have something put all this heat in the system and then it wants to reach absolute zero. So something right. had to initially put the heat in and that heat's going to dissipate unless something reaches back into the system. And so if I understand correctly, not only do you have the factor there of uh, things don't go from from uh, chaos to order, but also you have a time factor here as well. Is that right? That's right, which uh, that explains why the, the steady state theory that the universe has always existed mm-hmm. cannot be true. Right. And, right. and it, you know, most scientists, even atheistic scientists, will recognize there's a problem with the uh, steady state theory, which is why they need a big bang. Right, right. And then, so that's your number two. And then your number one, which I called it, I figured that was going to be your number (laughs) one because you talked about it a lot in school. Uh, Mount St. Helens, small scale formation of a miniature uh, Grand Canyon, if you will. And uh, this, uh, this disproves uniformitarianism, does it not? That's right. You have two schools. You, You have uniformitarianism and catastrophism. Uh, uniformitarianism, uh, the present is the key to the past, or um, uh, no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end. Uh, Hutton and others were uh, instrumental in trying to, to s- explain things that way. In other words, the, the rate at which things happen today is the rate at which they've happened for millions of years, which is why we don't see any uh, sudden geologic change. The only problem is even the evolutionist needs catastrophes like a comet striking the Yucatan Peninsula mm-hmm. to destroy the dinosaurs. I kid you not, I saw on a PBS special recently that uh, the way that evolutionary scientists and geologists are now explaining things like the global flood evidence, they said there was a period of two million years where it rained for two million years straight. <laughs> and there was I've lots of that. and there was lots of localized floods, but not a global flood. Yeah, so, that's, that's very convenient. It's very convenient and, you know, just absurd that people will accept that, but not the biblical account. I do have right. a question about, you know, you mentioned kind of a miniature Grand Canyon, basically, at Mount St. Helens. I'd kind of like to connect that to the Grand Canyon. So uh, I guess, you know, is there is there a good possibility that there's a combination of both receding floodwaters uh, as well as maybe volcanic activity as well? That would yeah, have formed the Grand Canyon? I think the Grand Canyon was more the receding floodwaters. Uh, the flood took place because of the opening of all the, the um, fountains of the Great Deep and so forth. And I would say that those sent ash and salt and other nuclei of condensation into the atmosphere uh, to cause uh, the pre-flood uh, firmament uh, to fall. And that's why there was so much rain falling. Um, but most of that energy would have released pretty quickly. 
uh, inland um, continents that that were being moved and and formed at that time, you would have had large lakes, bodies of water. And I would suggest that one of those great inland bodies of water uh, basically broke through what was holding it. And that has turned into the Grand Canyon and the uh, today the Colorado River runs uh, through that system. Uh, but, you know, you look at the Colorado River, it, it's a very tiny thing. There's uh, no way. There's no way it forms the Grand Canyon. No. It's no. part of what they say. Uh, yeah, th- that has to have been something that happened uh, because of a great body of water. So I would say it was an inland uh, dam that was holding back waters from the flood and that basically let go. And the uh, sediment was still relatively soft, it's just like with reference to uh, Mount St. Helens, it wasn't the volcanic eruption. It was the Lahar and then a subsequent re- eruption in Lahar uh, that caused the canyon to go through. Do you think that, you know, the Earth's large canyons like the Grand Canyon and others, do you think that maybe they served as kind of like a drainage system yeah. after the flood? Yeah, no question. A lot, lot of people ask, well, what happened to the water of the flood? Now, number one, the mountains uh, pre-flood weren't as tall as the mountains that we have now. Uh, I would suggest you, you didn't have sedimentary rock before the, the uh, flood because the indication in Scripture is that it didn't rain. And so uh, that's how you get sedimentary rock, washes down uh, the sediment from hills and so forth. So I, I, the, the immense power unleashed in the flood formed the mountains uh, that we have. So the water didn't need to be 29,000 feet tall. The water could have been, you know, 1,000, 1,500 feet. And, um, you know, basically anywhere you go, you dig down far enough, you're going to get water. Uh, so there, there's, there are water systems underneath this. There's water in the oceans. Basically, these were areas where the water drained off into the oceans. That makes sense. All right. Well, I really appreciate your ranking there. And uh, hopefully this will be some good food for thought for our listeners. Do you have any maybe uh, resources you you would recommend to uh, further look into these Christian evidences? Uh, Sure. The uh, um, first one would be apologeticspress.org. A lot of great material there. Uh, Christian Courier. Dot, I think it's dot com. I could be wrong about that. But Wayne Jackson did a lot of writing on these matters. Um, Institute for Creation Research, uh, ICR, I think it's ICR.org. There are a lot of great uh, sources out there. Uh, Answers in Genesis. Um, if you ever have the opportunity to go to the Creation Museum or, or the Ark, you know, whatever you see there, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, Because a lot of it is going to be theory, and a lot of it also is um, religious from a uh, denominational point of view. A lot of uh, denominational soteriology. That's right. And and not only that, but eschatology. So take all that with with a grain of salt, but they've got a lot of good material. Yeah, I I definitely recommend uh, if you... You know, you've got to spit out a few bones, but definitely going and checking out the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum in yeah. Kentucky and, and in the Cincinnati area. And then uh, I found out recently in the Dallas area, the Institute of Creation Research has a, a museum in really? uh, Dallas. 
and it's quite impressive as well. It's not quite as large of a scale, but it's still very, uh, very eye-opening, and it, they've got awesome. a lot of good apologetics stuff in there. So, so well, if you're ever in the Dallas area, check that out as well. Yeah, uh, I think I haven't been, but I think the Museum of the Bible in uh, D.C. would be good. Right. That would probably deal more with the uh, the archaeological stuff right. and and the textual you know textual criticism of the Bible and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, I really appreciate you for uh, coming on and, and sharing yeah. this with our listeners, and appreciate you for the other episodes that you helped out with a while back as well. And yes, sir. I hope, hope that you're well and um, the family's well, and just uh, as always, appreciate you very much. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the invitation to be on. Yes, sir. Thank you, the listeners of the Everyday Christian Podcast as well, and all of our Scattered Abroad Network listeners as well. Make sure you check out all the various podcasts that we have to offer at uh, scatteredabroad.org. And uh, tune in next week, and Lord willing, we will have another episode of the Everyday Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.